0: Thank you all for joining. I thought we would at least spend some time sharing what we know and what we don't know um, about um, use of POCUS in COVID and then talk about some of the protocols and things that we're doing here locally with our group in San Antonio. Um, So we have a large group of people joining. Um, We felt that we should share knowledge and especially in a crisis and so we have a diverse group of specialties. We have some people from emergency medicine, some some people from uh, critical care um, and then several hospitalists and maybe even some outpatient internal medicine doctors. Um, Some of you can see Gonzalo who's joining us he's in Spain and then we have people from really all over the U.S. um, joining so uh, last thing I'll say is we have varying POCUS skills some of you are very very savvy with uh, point of sound and are using it every day some of you are somewhere in the middle and some of you are just getting started but um, this is obviously a safe zone. We're here to share information because we're all in this together. So what's the goal of today? Let's get familiar with some of the uses of point of care ultrasound in COVID-19, um, what we know, and, and what's been uh, disseminated out there. I'm going to talk a lot about the different lung ultrasound findings um, and then show you some of the protocols and and what we're doing here locally and all this information is going to be shared by um, a video and the slides will be posted too and then I'll finish up with a few high yield POCOS applications um, besides lung ultrasound. So um, we've got a chat box and we haven't used this so if you've got questions at the very end my goal is to finish up in about 50 45 to 50 minutes and then we can have an open discussion so keep track of your questions, jot them down. You can also use a chat box at the bottom. Um, Just make sure you mute your microphone unless you're uh, you're speaking. And then again, all the slides will be recorded and and available open access for all. So lung ultrasound and COVID-19, big questions are, what does COVID-19 look like on ultrasound? Is there anything unique about it? Uh, And then how can we use it in our patient care for diagnosing and and managing um, our, our patients now? So I think it's really important to take a look at this curve. Um, This came out, you know, all these things came out in the last um, few weeks, uh, February up until now. Um, But this is the uh, incubation curve. So it's two to 14 days. So now that the world knows about COVID-19, they're not necessarily presenting way out over here when they're really sick. They're presenting right down here, day zero, day one, day two, day three, day four, day four. Day five, right? I mean, I, I would say there's so much awareness um, that uh, um, it's, it's actually made it quite difficult to diagnose. Um, why is that? It's because when we look at it, um, you know, the PCR positivity, it was interesting. The median um, time for symptoms was 5.1 days, which actually overlap with this study that compared CTs and PCR. Um, it was a range of about 1.5 on either side. So, if it takes about five days for most people's PCR to become positive, um, how do we figure out these patients down here, which is where most people are now going to present because they know that um, COVID is is rampant all over. And a couple of other important points: 98% of people will be symptomatic by day 11. So, by the time you get to this part of the curve. Um, Everybody's going to have symptoms. And then just a reminder here is uh, the case severity. Most of these cases are going to be mild. 80 81% are going to be mild. Um, It's really these 20% that get really sick um, and end up in the hospital. (laughs) But PCR testing has lots of limitations. Um, This slide has gotten so busy over the last couple of days as I put this together. And there's even things sort of falling off the slide. So first, limited availability of testing. Um, for, and for the United States, 97% of the U.S. is rural, 60 million people live in the rural areas. Um, I just heard yesterday that I mean, we're in Texas, so 200 of our 254 counties don't have any access to testing as of yesterday. Um, there's also diminishing supply of viral swabs, there's errors in sampling technique, you stick the swab in somebody's nose and they jump back and you, know, you, you don't get a good sample, you try again and the same thing happens. Um, there's delays up to seven days for results. So, recently, so recently, um, we just got, uh, as of today, got tw- uh, testing that's supposed to take place within 24 hours. But um, many places are still several days, if not, um, you know, up to seven days. There's some false negatives. So this is the this is the challenge here. Is we've started local testing. Um, sh- we should have PCR testing within 24 hours. Um, so there's new tests popping up, commercially available. Local institutions are doing their testing. But we don't necessarily know about the accuracy of these. Right? So that's why it's hard to go back up to this other bullet of what's the false negative rate. Um, some of the early literature from China had a false negative rate as high as 60%, I saw. Um, I think it's somewhere around 20 to 30%. But initially, that's really important initially, because if you go back to that curve that we just looked at, you know, down in here is when people are now going to start coming in. So. Um, It's a real challenge um, because when the titers are are low for their viral loads, um, the PCR is initially going to be negative. Some places obviously that have a high prevalence have have really sort of just ignored the PCR and said if you got fever, cough, shortness of breath, and um, positive imaging findings, we're going to assume you have the the disease. So a bunch of papers surfaced um, on the use of imaging and specifically chest CT for COVID-19 Um, These all came out in the last few weeks. I put the dates even at the bottom here, so this was February 19th. And this was a small study of about, uh, I believe it was around 80 patients, and they they compared the sensitivity of chest CT versus PCR. And their overall sensitivity was 98% for CT and 71% for PCR. Um, So the recommendation from this paper was we should use chest CT for screening COVID-19 patients and especially if they're, they're um, initially PCR co- um, PCRs negative. Um, then this paper came out on the 26th of February. This is a larger paper. It's um, 1,014 suspected patients. Um, they all had CTs of the chest and then serial PCR testing. Some important take home messages of this paper were that uh, chest CT was positive in, in 93% while initial PCR was negative. So um, when these people were presenting, that initial CT was, was positive. Um, the, the, the average delay in initial negatives of becoming positive was about five days. Um, and then overall, for all the positive cases, and positivity was defined as having a positive PCR, CT had a 97% sensitivity. But a low specificity, this is important to remember, because this is a viral pneumonia, so a lot of the findings are not necessarily specific to um, um, COVID-19, so it's a 25% specificity. So if we go back to this curve, right, if people are starting to now present down in this area earlier in their disease, you know, CT is gonna help us here, especially in that group that has an initial um, um, negative um, PCR, Um, and again, in that group, in this paper, the sensitivities were 93% for CT. Um, but a recent, another paper that came out um, just actually a couple of days ago looked at the sensitivity by days of presentation. And if it was early disease, day zero to five, CT chest had a sensitivity of 84%. And later in disease, after day six, it went up to 99%. So now we're talking about somewhere over here on the curve when, when probably the PCR is gonna be positive in most people too. I've tried to include all the references here so you can um, look these um, original papers up if you're interested. So what are the, the chest CT findings? And, and the reason uh, this is important is because uh, we're going to be talking about lung ultrasound in, in, in just a second and look for the parallels. Um, so what's known uh, first bilateral findings. So in 88 to 90% of patients, there were bilateral findings. I think that's an important one. Um, second one is the peripheral distribution of lesions and abnormalities. Um, So that's 72% of patients, and um, this is fortunate for us because with ultrasound, if we can interrogate the chest wall, we can see these peripheral lesions really well. In some cases, even better and more defined than than CT. The other abnormal findings were ground glass opacities alone uh, in about 40%, and then um, a mixture of ground glass opacities plus consolidation in about um, up to 60% um, of people. So this is a nice table um, from again another radiology study from um, late February and this looked at the early intermediate or late presentations and then um, the frequency of these different um, imaging abnormalities. So similar to that other paper I showed you consolidation you know I think if you look here intermediate is days three to five late is days six uh, to twelve so by the time in that people were in that three to five range, um, 55 to 60% had consolidation, 76 to 88% had uh, bilateral disease, and then 64 to 72% had this peripheral distribution. Uh, And again, it's important to see here that in that zero to two days, about 60% had a normal um, chest CT. this is another paper, and it shows you a nice sort of frequency over, over time and how the symptoms, and I'm sorry, not symptoms, the, um, uh, it's, it's based on the number of days of symptoms and then the imaging findings and their frequency um, as you go um, from left to right. So starting out here at day zero, you know, the CTs were, were normal, 20% had ground glass opacities, uh, and 20% had um, consolidations. By days zero to five, there was a lot more of this ground glass opacities, uh, but the same percentage of consolidation. Um, and then moving forward, you see that you know by day six, pretty much nobody had a, a normal um, CT, and 60% were showing ground glass um, op- um, opacities and about 20% consolidation. And then you get these mixed patterns around days 12, to you know, 18 and beyond, um, and then some resolution of, of 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 symptoms. But this is important too, in that um, you know, this is number of days since onset of symptoms at day 24 and greater. Uh, people still had a lot of imaging abnormalities. So this is a real problem of of um, you know, um, these patients are are staying in the hospital and and, and taking a long time to recover. Um, that's actually really what's backing up a lot of the, the hospitals. Um, over here, this is focusing just on the ground glass opacifications with other findings, so intralobular lines, intralobular thickening, and then irregular lines and interfaces. And so it gives you a little bit more detail on, on the specific um, CT abnormalities. So everything looks great for CT, doesn't it? Everybody's saying, CT, 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 and so the uh, American College of Radiology right at the beginning of March made this recommendation and said, American College of Radiology recommends use of CT radiography, um, I'm sorry, use of chest radiography and computed tomography for suspected COVID-19 infections. So, um, and this was based a lot off of the um, um, Chinese experience um, in CTing essentially everybody, and even CTing them multiple times and um, over the course of their disease. But the ACRs changing their recommendations a lot, almost every day now. You guys are probably wondering how much time I spend on the ACR website, but um, it's been interesting to see how their recommendations have changed even on a daily basis. So a couple of days ago on the 22nd, they put this Disclaimer on here. Uh, we want to emphasize that knowledge of this new condition is rapidly evolving. Not all the published and pri- uh, publicly available information is complete or up to date. Okay. Um, then the CDC comes around and says um, this is on the radiology website, but they say the CDC does not currently recommend chest x ray or CT to diagnose COVID 19. Viral testing remains the only specific method of diagnosis. Confirmation with the viral test is required, even if radiologic uh, findings are suggestive of COVID-19 on test, x-ray, or CT. Okay, so this is a little bit confusing, isn't it, right? So um, what do we do, right? One one says we can't pick up, our PCRs are going to be slow to pick up, their diagnostic accuracy is questionable, and now people are presenting early on. Just to take it, um, you know, um, one step further. Here, the um, ACR in one of their, on their March twenty second update was saying, um, as a interim measure until more widespread COVID nineteen testing is available, some medical practices are requesting chest CT to inform decisions on whether to test a patient for COVID-19 admit the patient or provide other treatment the ACR strongly urges caution in taking this approach but I think this is what a lot of hospitals or most hospitals are doing right now so ACR says be cautious Um, they go on to say a normal chest CT does not mean a person does not have COVID-19 infection and an abnormal CT is not specific for COVID-19 diagnosis so I think the other side of this that's concerning a lot of these radiology and echocardiography suites is what's down here at the bottom. The health and safety of radiologists, allied professionals, and patients and healthcare workers are of primary importance. And so what I've been seeing um, emerging more and more is all the cautions about cleaning the equipment, which I'm not saying that those are not important, but the, the challenge for the clinician is, well, so what do I what do, I do um, if I can't get CTs on, on, on these patients? So the current dilemma is chest CT is not feasible in every suspected COVID-19 case. Um, the rationale for not CT scanning every patient is disinfecting the CT scanners is very resource intensive in time, in sanitizing wipes, um, and you can just imagine the scan may just take a few minutes to run, but disinfecting everything could take you know, 30 minutes or more to do it properly. Um, also, the, there's a lot of concern about risk to other patients, staff, and radiologists in their imaging suites. And then, quite frankly, radiology is overloaded, they can't, um, we don't have enough radiologists to read every CT chest of if we were to scan every suspected COVID-19 um, case. So now radiology suites and ECHO labs, uh, American Society of ECHO has a big statement about cleaning the machines, um, want to minimize exposure to these patients and, you know, um, rightfully so to, to protect our, our healthcare workers. So this is China. What did China do? They scanned everybody. They even set up tents and parking lots and scanned people outside of the hospitals until they could get suites like this made. I'm sure some of you saw these pictures. This is the um, Wuhan hospital, one of two hospitals built in Wuhan. It's a 1,000-bed hospital. They built a similar one of 1,600 beds in 10 days. I think by day nine, it was finished, and they'd installed the CT scanner and started scanning patients. So, 10 days to make a thousand bed hospital, quite impressive. Um, Unfortunately, we can't do this. Um, I I heard from my colleague Gonzalo in Spain that they're trying to build a temporary building or hospital for patients in Spain, but here in the US, um, this is not going to be possible. So, This is where lung ultrasound comes in. So one thing we had to accept, and there's a whole body of literature, and, and I'm happy to send people references on this, but the diagnostic accuracy of lung ultrasound is superior to chest X-ray and similar to CT scans for common lung pathologies when performed by a trained provider. Okay, so I, I think for common lung pathologies like pneumonia, cardiogenic pulmonary edema, pleural effusions, um, etc. cetera, um, ultrasound when done properly has been accepted to be similar in diagnostic accuracy to CT scans. The other important point is um, how do you put the uh, disposable stethoscope on when you have a pepper suit on Um, and I don't know about your ears but I can't hear much when I use these stethoscopes even with this stethoscope the fancy Littman stethoscope nowadays uh, you know my hearing's going down too and not as good as it was 20 years ago. And I'm always, I doubt myself when I, when I hear things with this, along with the sort of the, the, the challenge of all the noise, um, ambient noise in all these um, spaces. So it's, it's um, I've heard from some colleagues, it's quite comical when you see this disposable stethoscope and you're wearing a pepper suit because you, you can't even use it. So this is, again, one more rationale for using lung ultrasound. So I'm gonna present some of the papers that came out specifically on lung ultrasound in, in um, COVID-19. So a few letters emerged um, in February, um, and then this paper came out um, at the end of February, so February 28th. Um, This is probably the largest one that's out there, but it's only uh, about 20 patients. Here's another one that came out on the 12th of of March, really more of a narrative of people's findings and experience in looking at the lungs um, with ultrasound. And then um, this one also, this was a case report, but they had some interesting findings in here too. So what was the take home of of, of these three different um, um, papers? So the lung ultrasound findings in COVID-19. First was a irregular thickened pleural line. Um, second one was lots of B lines. B lines that are focal, multifocal, and then even confluent. Um, um, coming into the next point, which is, um, multifocal subpleural consolidations um, and as far as localization goes 75% or at least two-thirds of these patients in one of the radiology CT studies had posterior lung fields that were abnormal so we got to make sure we image that it was posterior lungs um, and then the vast majority of these patients did not have a pleural effusion maybe a trace or um pleural effusion but if they were young and healthy and had only COVID-19 and didn't have um, you know, heart failure, or other comorbidities, um, they, they didn't have a, um, a pleural effusion. So what, is this, what does this look like? So I, for those of you who are experts, um, I'm just showing this for those uh, folks who have less experience in using lung ultrasound. Um, and, and so first of all, we've got to recognize what normal looks like. Um, so the two hallmark signs of normal lungs, lung sliding So a standard image is gonna be rib with rib shadow, rib here with rib shadow, rib with rib shadow here, and we see our plural line shimmering and sliding in between those rib spaces. Um, And there's two hallmark signs. You wanna see sliding or shimmering of that plural line and then A lines, which are reverberations or reflections of this plural line, which essentially tells us that below this plural line, we have air density. So these are the two hallmark signs you're looking for. It doesn't matter if you interrogate two spots, four, eight, six, twenty-eight scan lines, whatever protocol you use, this is what you're looking for in all your different lung spaces. Um, an important point with um, um, the uh, difference in dif- uh, probes is if you want to look at the pleural line and look more superficially, switch to your linear probe. So here's our rib, here's our rib, and here's our pleural line. You can see how much nicer the resolution is. Um, because COVID-19 has a lot of peripheral lung lesions, the linear... Um, and even some of those microconvex probes have been been very good. Um, you can see the difference. Here's the plural line on the with the phased array or lower frequency probe, and then here's the plural line with the linear. So you get better resolution for linear. And just to put some labels on, there they are. So this is what the irregular. Um, thickened pleural line looks like. So with a phased array probe, we got rib here, we got rib here, and you can see that this pleural line it's not as clean and crisp as those other ones I just showed you. It's kind of ragged. Um, if we if we zoomed in, we would see that it's 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 thickened. And then over here, this is with the linear probe. Again, not that smooth, uh, clean pleural line that that I just showed you on the other images. Talking about B lines um so you could have a few B lines So B lines they emanate off the plural line straight down to the bottom so they are these laser-like beans that come off the pearl line straight to the bottom you could have a few we generally consider three or more to be significant in any um intercostal um, space and then once you get several B lines they will start to fuse and become all white so i think I put some images in here. So these are some images from Gigi Liu. Uh, Gigi's a hospitalist at Johns Hopkins and and sent me a handful of images of their COVID-19 patients. Um, I don't know if Gigi's on. I think she was admitting patients. So um, these are the actual images. So you can see here where we've got rib and rib shadow here, rib, rib shadow here. You see this really thickened um, pleural line. It's very sort of um, really undefined. And then you see these laser-like beams, these, these white beams of, of uh, um, lucency coming straight down towards the bottom. And they're actually starting to fuse here in this space, right? If we zoomed in, we may see some subplural consolidations there. Same thing over here. So the other important thing is B lines are going to slide with the pleura if the uh, if this pleura is sliding. Um, if the pleura is not sliding, then you'll see the B lines stagnant. And that brings me to subplural consolidation. So, so we get subplural consolidations was the next finding. So this is, this is a non-COVID patient over here okay, on the left of the screen. So what are the these small focal areas of consolidation? And you can see this um, sort of air, water, um, boundary, you know, maybe a, a mini shred sign as they've, they've been called, but basically that interface of a liquid density lung against some aerated lung, um, typically with all these sort of B lines coming off it. So this is an image from Gigi, maybe a little bit hard to appreciate and I'll show you some of the other images here in, in a couple of upcoming slides, but there's an area right in here of um, sub consolidation. So last thing I want to mention, absence of pleural effusion. So if we go back to our classic signs that help us rule out pleural effusion, here we can see our mirror image of the liver, right? We can also see our curtain sign. Patient takes a breath and it looks like somebody pulls a curtain. But um, just to get the group oriented, here's the spine. And you see the spine abruptly cuts off right here at the level of the diaphragm. And you see this mirror image of the liver across the diaphragm. That gives you a reassurance that you have air density up here above the diaphragm um same thing here you can see the spine and a little bit of a mirror image but as the patient takes a deep breath you see the air um, fill lung descending down in front of the screen there's the pearl line right there like somebody's pulling the curtain so we can use these signs to rule out a pearl effusion pretty quickly so um seeing the curtain sign seeing a mirror image gives us reassurance that there's not a pearl effusion and then seeing the spine sign when there is a pleural effusion. When there is water density above the the level of the diaphragm, here's the pleural effusion, here's the atelectatic lung, you will see the spine extending way up above the level of the diaphragm, okay? Just a basic
1: Sonny, this is Drake. Can I interrupt you for one second? Go ahead. (laughs) Can I ask everybody who's not you to mute your microphones? Not everyone's reading the chat, and uh, there's a lot of feedback. So can everybody else please mute?
0: Yeah, please mute mute your mics. Uh, We'll have some time for discussion at the end. All right, thank you. Uh, I'm not sure if Gonzalo's still on, but You know, this is a picture from back in um, November. There's Gonzalo. There's Marcos, our ICU director, and myself. And um, Gonzalo turned out uh, COVID-19 positive. Um, and he actually posted a lot of his images on, on Twitter and shared them. Fortunately, he's better and, and now back to work. Um, are you on with us, Gonzalo? You may have had to run. But Yes, you... yes, 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 I I'm here, I'm here. Oh, good. Well, yeah, thank you, yeah. It's good to hear from you, and um, you know I think there's a lot of things that we could take away from 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 your case uh, besides just the lung ultrasound images. But uh, I'm going to show your your images first. The question is, is hopefully nobody next, right? But um, I think every ICU I've I've heard from has um, healthcare workers um, um, intubated where there where there's lots of cases coming in. So be careful, protect yourselves, wear a mask, especially. When you're going to see patients, uh, I know there's a concern for PPE, but wear a mask. So these are Gonzalo's images. So Gonzalo's a 50-year-old healthy man. Um, You can see his images on day two. So you see lots of B-lines. You can see these irregularities. Looks like there's a little area of subplural consolidation there in that right lower posterior lung. Um, Lots of B-lines on day two. Here's day three, day two to three. So again, here's that area. Looks like some subpleural consolidation there, some B lines coming off. Uh, looks like he actually gets pretty bad here on um, day four, day five, day six. Um, and this is also, if you remember back to that curve I showed you when, when the CTs will all be you know nearly 100% positive. Lots of B lines, infusion of B lines. Um, and now this is day 11, so he's actually feeling better, and this is, I think, um, he, he's pointing out that subplural consolidation right in there. But, you know, even by day 11, you're seeing not, um, um, that the findings, uh, the abnormalities have not completely resolved. So, Gonzalo, how do you feel now? You're back to work. You're still uh, fatigued and short of breath. I, 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 am, I am right uh, now.
2: I feel much better, and I start uh, working again. Uh, with uh,
3: patients with COVID, yeah. Uh,
0: so, um, you know, and Gon- Gonzalo asked me to 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 be the spokesperson and tell you a little bit about his case. Um, um, and and he said, uh, you know, he was exposed to a forty-seven-year-old lady who was um, very ill went straight up to the ICU and he got exposed and he, t- he got sick um, shortly after that. It was only like a two-day incubation period. Um, um, he has, you know, children at home and his wife. I think an important thing for healthcare workers um, is, um, you know, the way he managed it while he was positive and quarantined was he lived in a separate part of um, their home and only communicated with them by telephone um, and didn't share really any time or anything with them, separate bathroom, separate room. Um, for about, I think, 11 days or so. So um, we're, we're glad you're better. And um, he did send me a document in Spanish, which, which I can, we'll, we'll get all this stuff posted afterwards on um, things you can do at home if you're quarantined and positive and, and try to reduce the risk of um, exposing your, your colleagues, uh, I'm sorry, your, your, your family, um, and your colleagues if they come to visit. So I wanna talk a little bit about the, our lung ultrasound protocol that we're gonna use here. Um, and share it with you. Um, There's lots and lots of different protocols out there. If you already have one established at your institution, you can continue to follow that. Um, Two general themes, you can scan from top to bottom or you can scan different areas. But I think the recurring theme is that you want to scan different areas, so the anterior, lateral, and posterior lungs. Um, Some places scan two zones in in each of these different areas for a total of six on each side. but I think what's most important for us as is, is we look forward and, and want to share and compile um, our, our data and our images is to label your images, not just for the, your colleague who's going to be taking over for you, you know, when you change shifts, um, who will probably be looking at the images on the ultrasound machine, given that most places don't have image archiving, um, but label your images. And so what we're doing here is we're going we're gonna, to uh, continue our standard four. So Um, roughly mid-clavicular line, upper lobe here, coming down to uh, space two, this on the um, lateral, uh, along that anterior axillary line, going really more for that middle lobe, and then getting two views of the lower lobe, so along the mid-axillary line, and then as far back posteriorly as you can go. Now, this is going to be mostly your hospitalized patients. If you have patients that can sit up, you can go even farther back, but at least getting two views of that, Um, lower lobe, especially because that's where most of the pathology has been found. So, um, you know, when you look at Lichtenstein's papers and Italian papers and and several of the other papers, um, I think that the reason the, the, the minimum of four points works is you're pretty much hitting all the big lobes of the lung, right? So that point number one, so I'm going to go back here. This point up here, this is like our upper lobe. This is our middle lobe, and you could slide more medially to see more of the middle lobe. And then these two down here are our lower lobe. I think for um, um, people that are new to POCUS and for others, it makes more sense and it's easier in communication when you're talking about upper lobe, middle lobe, lower lobe. It also correlates nicer with the CT findings. Um, so, So going back to this schematic, looking at our different lung segments. So this is point one, where we really get that upper lobe. Point two, we pick up that middle lobe, and you can slide medially to get a, a better view of that um, the medial portion of that middle lobe. And then points three and four are going to cover the anterior portion of the lower lobe, and then the posterior and superior segments of that lower lobe. I think the key finding in COVID is if you if um, if you're scanning. Um, this posterior zone, you want to slide upwards to make sure you can see that superior segment. It's just an extra, you know, few seconds of of sliding upward to make sure you've, you've looked at that lower lobe clearly. Um, And again, that's where most of pathology's um, been seen, 60 to 75% in the the COVID-19. If you have a protocol or a way of um, uh, labeling these images um, on your machine, Um, it will help your colleagues again when they pick up the machine after you. Um, Here at our institution we're going to use this schematic um, and and label them as right upper lobe, right middle lobe, right lower lobe anterior, right lower lobe posterior. Uh, On the left side obviously we don't have a middle lobe we have the lingular lobe so this one will be the lingular lobe Um, and then we can track patients over time. Our proposed scoring system um you know this is based on looking at the literature, what's out there and also what's practical for people to do uh, and what people will be able to do and willing to do um, is you know zero for normal um, three or more discrete B lines one point if they're starting to fuse, meaning confluent fused B lines it gets two points and then once you see subfloor consolidations, three or, four points for um, um, entire um, low bar consolidation. I think you'd grade them on each of those um, um, views that you're getting on each side with the worst um, scoring you could give them for each um, space. Uh, for those of you in the VA, we have a VA POCUS template. Um, last week, I, I asked for the, the national CPRS people to push this to all the VAs. It is available locally at our South Texas VA. It's active. I know Robert Nathanson already put a note in. Um, it's been peer-reviewed and vetted through many people. So if you, if you um, are at a VA, you can use this template and you can document as much or as little um, as you want. Um, it's really designed to, to be as user-friendly as possible. Um, So wrapping up here on on the lung ultrasound, so how do we use this? Uh, I think all of you are in different settings from clinics to the ICU. Um, But I think if you have an abnormal lung ultrasound, um, it sort of raises your your level of concern. So if you've got a low-risk patient and you're in the outpatient setting, meaning they're young, they don't have any other morbidities, labs look good, and the ultrasound of their lungs is normal, you can pretty comfortably say they could go home. Um, however, if you are seeing um, abnormal lung ultrasound findings, maybe you'd consider putting them into the hospital. Okay, and so um, these markers up here are the ones so far that have been shown um, to be related to mortality, especially age greater than 60, um, cardiovascular disease, high D dimer, high CRP, high LDH, and lymphopenia. Um, for those patients that are going to come into the hospital, those are going to be our intermediate to high risk patients. Um, You know, if they have an abnormal lung ultrasound, um, then we're essentially going to put them into the ICU, okay? Uh, I think an important take-home message is that um, what we're hearing is that people come in and they crash very quickly. So I think for all of our hospitalists out there, if you're seeing a lot of lung abnormalities on your ultrasound, um, and even though they're maybe, you know, young and otherwise look good— um, have a high index of suspicion and concern that those patients um, um, can deteriorate pretty quickly, quicker than most people would have ever thought. A couple other things I want to mention before we open up to the discussion is just goal-directed echo um, and then confirming endotracheal 2 placement. Um, so from the Seattle group at the University of Washington, they published something just recently in JAMA that a third of their elderly patients in the ICU had a Um, cardiomyopathy with their COVID-19 disease that seems to be different or separate from um, a chronic um, heart failure. Um, There's another report of about 7%. So just keep an eye out for this because um, I don't think we fully understand the, the whole pathophysiology here, but there are patients without previous cardiac dysfunction that are getting cardiac dysfunction with bad um, COVID-19 disease. Again, just as a reminder for the goal-directed ECHO, you know, we still emphasize the standard five views, but at a minimum, you'd wanna get some your parasternal views and then a good um, four-chamber view, like an apical or subcostal four-chamber view. Um, SCCM published some recommendations. These are free download online. A lot of the recommendations are weak recommendations. Um, The ones that stand out in my mind are um, going straight to intubation from um, nasal cannula rather than using um, non-invasive positive pressure um, uh, ventilation um, or um, high-flow nasal cannula. Um, But as far as cardiac dysfunction goes, they did make a statement about adding dobutamine over um, going to very high doses of norepinephrine. So I think the recommendation here was still norepinephrine first, but if they have cardiac dysfunction, you could add on some dobutamine um, and then avoiding dopamine. Uh, These are some images from from Gigi from Johns Hopkins, and this was a patient that presented um, with COVID-19 positivity. um, Actually had rhinovirus too, I believe, um, which is another whole topic of co-infection, and that um, just a uh, a positive flu doesn't necessarily rule out uh, COVID-19, or a positive rhinovirus or other swab doesn't necessarily rule out COVID-19. Um, but you can see from these images for um, a sick patient who is tachycardic, the um, LV systolic function is not as robust as it should be from this parasternal long axis view and this parasternal short axis view. It also brings up another point, and um, ECHO labs are collaborating more and more with point-of-care ultrasound users to you know, use their images, double-read their images, uh, confirm their readings if needed when um, there's a request for a a transthoracic echo. Um, So places that have archiving systems, this is great for places that don't, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, But just um, be be aware that um, the the cardiology world is is now reading a lot of these POCUS images um, and confirming the findings of the frontline doctors. Uh, I'm just going to show you a couple slides in confirming ET2 placements. Um, so these come from my colleague and friend at Vanderbilt, Dr. Jeremy Boyd. Um, so you would place the transducer right above the the clavicle and that suprasternal notch. And then what you're looking for is, where you're probably going to see first is this curved cartilage shadow. If you're high up, it's going to probably be the the um, the, the cricoid cartilage, but as you slide down to right above where the clavicles are, you'll see these tracheal rings, right? And here's the thyroid sitting right on top of the, of the trachea. So in this left image, there's a, a tube being passed right through the center here, and you see some movement right in here, and you see the tube actually come into view right in there. So for people that are supervising others or your you're a second set of hands, you can put the transducer um, transversely just like this over the uh, supra notch. Um, And then the person pushing the the tube in can can be given feedback as to whether you're seeing movement right below these uh, tracheal rings. Now this one over here is um, what we don't want to see, which is the tube over to the side. Okay, they sort of call this sort of this double um, arch or um, hump sign where you got the trachea here and you've got the esophagus. over to the side. Well, my, my screen is frozen, um, but I think, uh, you know, for the sake of time, we should carry on. I had um, a few more slides, um, but I think we should open this up to discussion on different topics. So, Mangala, thanks so much for joining us. So, for for those of you who don't know Mangala, Mangala is the director for uh, critical care at Northwell uh, in North Shore Long Island Jewish, really the mecca of critical care ultrasound in North America, um, and she's really been a guru for many, many um, people and 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 um, um, faculty um, in ultrasound. And so, so Mongo, we we hear New York's been getting really pounded. Um, I think <laughs> using my words.
4: I got in trouble for those words in the Wall Street Journal. I got yelled at for that by my health system. Uh, But we are getting pounded. We're getting destroyed. We have over 200 COVID patients in our two tertiary sites. Over 80 of them are intubated now uh, in ARDS. We have 80 intubated ARDS between North Shore and LIJ. So uh, to me, that's the definition of pounded. We've had to triple our ICU space in both places and triple our um, faculty in both places. And it's been extremely challenging. Um, we have a 23 hospital system. The community hospitals are getting destroyed. They have 8, 9, 10 ARDS patients. One of them has 20 ARDS patients in a particularly bad hot spot. So they can't handle it, obviously. Uh, and they are, it, it's a very hard situation all around. So I would be prepared, you guys, it ha- if it hasn't hit you yet, it will. And when it does, it's just the tsunami of people coming in. We have an RRT on our floors every two hours, and every two hours someone is getting intubated and brought down to the ICUs. So it's um, very challenging. I'm waiting for it to plateau. We've been doing this now for two full weeks. Uh, And the problem is that they have long intubation times, so they don't go anywhere uh, for a long time, and the ICU space just keeps getting taken up. Um, But that's where we are clinically, but that's not what this is about. This is about ultrasound. Uh, We have been ultrasounding like we always do, we have one machine dedicated to our COVID unit that doesn't leave the unit. We uh, obviously wipe down between patients completely with the, with the purple top wipes, which have bleach in them. And we are uh, ultrasounding the way that we normally would. Interesting things that we've seen in these patients, uh, a lot of felines to begin with, the ones who get intubated, not a lot of consolidations. And as they get sick and go into the cytokine surge phase about 10 days in, they start developing consolidations. Their, their lung ultrasound changes, their pleural line gets thicker, and that's when they go into multi-system failure, the ones who do and are, are not surviving that. So that's what we've been consistently seeing. But really, in the beginning, normal B lines, sometimes A lines anteriorly, um, thin pleura, and uh, as the disease progresses, that obviously changes very much. Most of these patients we've been proning, and they've done really well proning. And we've been ultrasounding them proning. You can see the difference in aeration once they're proned. Um, and the other thing that we've been noticing is they're very thrombogenic. So we've been trying to do uh, DVT studies on them on a regular basis to follow uh, to, to make sure that they're not several, several of them have died of PEs. So That's the ultrasound findings that we have been seeing. Um, the ones who don't do well and go into multi-system failure also develop a myocarditis with a troponin that goes to the 3-400s, and they go into cardiogenic shock, as, as I'm sure you've been reading. So that's uh, that's consistent with what we see at the bedside. The VTI goes way down, and we're unable to do anything about that. They're very... Um, Label at that point on three pressors, and then just nothing changes in their VTI and, and they don't survive. But, but again, that's 10 to 14 days out that we've seen that. Otherwise, they really have been normal LV function and um, the B-lines as I described.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. Mama. Thanks so much. Um, you said you're proning the patients. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
4: Most of these patients have been extre- doing extremely well with proning. So they come in, reintegrate, it paralyzed to date. Uh, the paralytics also make a huge difference. And there's still their PO2s are very low, 50s, you know, on 100% and of peep. They're, they're very peep dependent also. But as soon as you prone them, they, they do well. And sometimes we've been leaving them prone two or three days before we flip them because they're really labile once you flip them. But many, many, many ECMO calls, and all of them did better with just proning. We've only put ECMO on three people out of the 80-something that we – and there's even more if you consider our whole system that we get ECMO calls for. If you just – community hospitals are now proning. Um, We're not using those fancy prone beds. We're just flipping them using the New England Journal video, and we're teaching all of our community sites to do the same, and that has made a huge difference.
0: Yeah, that's great, Mama. Um And then I guess one of the questions I had is really more on the on the team. How are you guys managing, keeping all your your team uh, and staffing?
4: So we have expanded out and um, beyond our normal traditional MICU team. We're using surgical intensivists to man teams. We're using cardiology um, CCU people to man teams. We're using cardiothoracic people to man teams. So we have really divided and conquered. And as new ICUs open, we've asked these teams to help us run those ICUs. And once a day, we'll touch base, or our fellow will go in, into those units and just touch base on ARDS management to try, try to help them. But that's sort of, um, we've, had to, we've had to share the, the ARDS with other, with other subspecialties. Now we're about to go into the hospitalist world to ask for help from them, uh, and that's going to be the next place that we go into.
0: Yeah, and that's that's what we're going to probably be doing here locally, um, depending on on people's comfort with procedures and and. Um, and and honestly, patients.
4: we're supplementing we're supplementing any team that feels uncomfortable with even our junior fellows to help out, um, just to help do procedures or just help with the croning. Um, and the other thing that we have done is uh, backfill all the hospitalists with outpatient doctors who who's. On-
0: you still there, Mangla? looks like we lost you. Any ultrasound questions or critical care questions? Or...
5: I'm talking to you, how have you been? Uh, uh, thank you so much for the podcast at Chess. That was really great and very informative and you, you're helping us to prepare. You're welcome,
4: you're welcome.
5: It was really, really nice, congratulations. Uh, Can you tell us about the staffing ratio and how many patients uh, per doctor are you assigning uh, to each intensivist, or how are you managing the staffing from the nurse's perspective and from the physician's perspective? Can you talk a little bit about that, please?
4: So we decided, we sat down and we decided that the ratio that we would go for for every 10 patients, that we would have one attending during the day um, and two either mid-levels or residents um, uh, helping them um for every 10 patients that's during the day and then at night we would combine two teams of 10 and for every 20 patients we would have one attending and two residents or or a mix of residents and acps helping them so we sort of uh, did it based on groups of 10.
5: and for nursing ratios for all these sick patients what are you doing
4: so we have been very lucky that we have not yet had to go down on our ECMO patients, we have one-to-one nursing, but otherwise we have had, been able to do still two-to-one or at the most three-to-one. In our community hospital not so fortunate. And at some places, they're at four-to-one nursing already in the ICU. And, then, and remember, people get sick. Um, people have symptoms. People drop out for two weeks. So you lose a lot of staff along the way from illness, uh, whether it's community spread or exposure from the hospital definitely people are, you're losing people.
5: And you're doing shifts or for how long, uh, Mangala, when you are, on, when you are uh, one of the attendings of these services?
4: No more than five days at a time.
5: How many hours a day?
4: We do um, almost 12, it's like 11 hours a day, and then there's a night team that comes on.
5: Okay, and how are you handling the documentation?
4: So we just had a meeting about that. Um, We are deciding that we are going to minimum documentation, we're cutting out all the garbage that we had to do for regulatory purposes, and we're going to just do very, very minimum documentation. Uh, What exactly we're going to cut out, we're still working on that now, but you can't keep up with the normal level of documentation at this point.
5: Very good. Have you defined any specific team roles like uh, intensivists or people that will intubate or people that will do lines or how are you guys dividing for this special kind of needs for this patient?
4: Every every team should have somebody who could do procedures, whether that's an ACP or that is the um, intensivist or that is the fellow. Somebody on that team should be able to do procedures and somebody on that team Uh, needs to lead the team in terms of uh, um, um, attending. And the rest of the team can be made up of whatever you have. But we really try to think through the team so that there would be somebody um, or somebody in the unit next to them that could help with procedures. Um, So we've sort of tried to do it like that.
5: Mangala, and to cover all these people, are you using negative airflow rooms for 80 patients, or how are you handling uh, the, the, all this number of beds and, uh, in a positive airflow room? What, what, what are you doing? So
4: we have cleared out all of our regular ICU patients from any and put them into. They're not. They're not all negative pressure rooms anymore. We did our best to stick to that as long as we could, and at this point, we're just putting them in single rooms, no negative pressure, or now we're about to go into big open space with all COVID positives and HEPA filters. We just, there's no way to maintain. Uh, There's just not enough negative pressure beds in our whole hospital system to to cover these patients. So we're cohorting um, COVIDs and rule out COVIDs in a separate place, and we're cohorting negative COVIDs in another place. The other thing to watch out for is when is a COVID really negative because if the swab is not done right your COVID comes back negative and you're not really negative so to watch out we've we have pretty much put the rule down that every ICU patient needs to have two COVID if the first one is negative.
5: Mangala in these positive rooms with all these COVID positive people what kind of uh, PPEs are you wearing because I cannot imagine that you're wearing what the with well, the gowns and and clothes are recommended by the CDC what what exactly are you wearing
4: We're wearing N95s and gowns I mean that's what we're we're not wearing anything anything special there's a surgical mask over the N95 and we have gowns on and that's pretty much it
5: Mangala be safe we pray for goggles, you and be goggles. Yes. and uh, we will we'll keep you in our prayers
4: I appreciate it thank, thank you Thank you so much
5: for all your feedback Thank you
4: so much Mangala if
0: you can stay if you can stay on, that'd be great. We have some POCUS questions. Um, you know, I'm just remembering in the last few slides I had, and I'll send these out, I had some uh, things about disinfection. If you can keep a um, dedicated machine, um, that would be best. But there are, um, if you go to the CDC website, um, there there are um, different um, Sani wipes that they've approved for COVID-19. The important point is um, two to three minutes. If you're not sure, make sure the wet time is three minutes. Pretty much all the Sani wipes will Kill COVID 19 um, except for the HB ones, but pretty much all the standard ones will will kill it. Uh, Cavi wipes will also work, Um, and even some of the like Clorox um, wipes that they sell, even like at the grocery store. Um, So, I'm going to open this up to some different POCUS questions. I saw one question about B lines, and can you see B lines with the linear probe? I mean, you can essentially see B lines with any probe. Um, the, uh, in Europe they use a lot of the microconvex probe, um, traditionally we use a low frequency probe to see B lines, but um, you know the saying that you've got to go down to 15 to 18 centimeters, that's been, that's been passed down, but you'll still see B lines uh, with any probe you use, curvilinear phased array, uh, linear, uh, or microconvex. If you guys have any questions, I'm looking at the chat, but if you want to speak up and uh, just introduce yourself and your question, and we could talk about it as a, as a group.
2: Hey guys, uh, this is Jerry um, from Denver Health. Uh, I had a question for Mangaleth. Do you notice any prognosticators on lung ultrasound that can help you say, well, this guy's heading the right way, or this guy's going to just be your. Pro-
4: our, our usual prognosticators, right? If, if the B lines go to A lines, which they have been, and the people who have been getting better, uh, we know they're getting better. The B lines should go to consolidations in the people who just get much sicker and, and decompensate. So that's the same thing that we've been seeing in this disease as we see uh, in any disease,
6: as, as usual.
2: Okay. okay. And one last question about, like, so for COVID testing, I, I mean, this may be sounding a little crazy, but I don't know that, that COVID testing itself clinically... Has any major implications on what we are doing at this point, given this lack, the lack—the sensitivity is only seventy percent, more or less—and that we're not even sure if the hydroxychloroquine azithromycin kind of combo helps. What's your, you know, what's your take on that? Like, does it really it, matter? It, it doesn't.
4: It doesn't really matter. It's not going to change what you do, but it does matter in getting them into clinical trials.
2: Right. You have
4: to have a positive. Uh, getting them cohorted properly, like you know, you're cohorting negatives with negatives, like. I mean, and I don't even know what to do about that. You're going to run out of space at some point. But it is, um, I don't know, there's some very uncertain, you feel very uncertain when you don't know what you're dealing with. It's a, a more a psychological thing, I think, than anything else. But uh, I think to cohort people who are suspected COVID with cohort co- COVID positives, it makes me really worry that we're, we're infecting people who, sh- who are not infected. Um, I don't know. I, I, it's not accurate. You're absolutely right. I, I don't have good evidence at all. I just think that there's some power in knowing in, in, in terms of where you put people and getting them into clinical trials and what, you know, you don't want to give hydroxychloroquine and azithro and, and to people who don't have COVID because their QTs are all prolonging. They're having problems with that. So to do that to patients who don't need it, I think is a problem also.
2: Thanks, Michael.
1: Hey, Mangala, this is uh, Mark Foster um, down in San Antonio. Um, more of an ICU question than ultrasound. Are, are you noticing, you know, with these long ICU stays, that you're having to move to uh, tracheostomies for these patients? Are you leaving them intubated uh, since they're such, you know, high risk um, and unstable? We're having
4: we're having debates about this because we really, as a group, have decided that we would not do. Um, non-invasive because we really felt that it was too risky for, for the providers going in and out of the room. So to extubate them and not have non-invasive is, is difficult because we, use, we rely on it a lot during our extubations. Uh, we also, all of the things that I have read have said that they need long intubation times, like two weeks. So we're really trying to be patient because we're hitting like the two, three-week mark right now here. So a lot of our patients are in that window. Um, and there's a big debate because there's a surgical critical care people taking care of some of the patients as well, and they want to do early trachs on all these patients, and we're pushing back saying let's wait and not do it because you're going to end up with this whole group of, uh, you know, uh, hundreds of patients that are, are trach dependent. Um, so we're having a lot of ethical discussions about this and what's the right thing to do. I don't know the right answer. I am leaning towards not doing early trachs because I feel like, for a lot of these patients who are older and, and don't do well, uh, is it the right thing to do to do with tracheostomy? To begin with, where are you getting all these ventilators from? You're not, we don't even have enough ventilators for young people. So to use them on patients, I don't know, there's a lot of ethics involved and it's not an easy answer, but I'm trying to not do early trach, but, I, but definitely it's, it's been a point of uh, uh, discussion in our group.
1: Gotcha. Very uh, uh, thoughtful. And have you had to use multiple ventilators uh, or a single ventilator for multiple patients yet? Has it has it gotten down to that?
4: <laughs> no, it has not. We still have two or three hundred ventilators left in our system to use, but they're coming it's at the point where we're doubling. We're doubling population at three, every three days. We're doubling intubated patient population. So that's just exponentially rising. So. We are trying. Um, we have not had to get to that point, but we're definitely looking at that. The problem with that is their compliance has to be the same. Their oxygen requirements have to be the same. Um, so there's a lot of uh, it, it. It sounds cute, but I'm not sure how it'll work overall from a pulmonary standpoint.
1: Right, having to match, you know, ideal body weight and uh, right. That's like the, you know
4: and... all of this stuff. Exactly that that you know it's. It, it seems more like a, a youtube gimmick to me but i guess if it was that or nothing we would do that
1: great thank you that's very uh, helpful and insightful uh and then for uh neelam i'm very impressed with this presentation thank you for putting this together um a question for you was uh you were bringing up um kind of a risk stratification and with the uh risk stratification kind of um triaging those patients was that Something that you were doing some research on your own and kind of uh, were trying to, uh, again, stratify these patients and determine where they could go, or was there good data on that, um, that you kind of saw that somewhere else?
0: Yeah, no, and I, I'm, I was looking at the chat, and some of my ED colleagues were, were speaking up, and I mean, I think going back to that very first curve I showed you, like 80% of people will have mild illness, right? So it depends upon where you're picking up their illness, and, and uh, where you are in the system, whether you're an outpatient clinic doc or in the ICU. So, um, if they're, if they are young, healthy, you know, normal O2 sat. Um, vitals look good, labs maybe marginally or very mildly abnormal, and they look good, they got good follow-up, and they're reliable, they can go home. And so you don't necessarily even need to ultrasound those people. I think if it's going to make, you know, if you're on the fence and you say, I don't know if we should admit this guy, we should watch him, he worries me. Well, that's where it could tip you one way or the other. You do the ultrasound, you see A-lines and sliding, looks good, you know, um, you could probably send that person home and, um, um, versus putting them in for maybe odds and saying, wow, cause sometimes we put the probe on and we get fooled, right? We're like, it's a lot worse than I thought. You actually do need to come in. I think that's where probably, you know, one of the biggest uses of it could be, um, does that answer your question, but is yeah, definitely. Yeah. There, there has not been any statement that I could find um, by any society or any group or organization that's based on everything that I think we're seeing um, and how this has evolved, especially now that people are presenting very early, right? I mean, you know, even coming into the hospital they're checking our fever, I mean, checking our temperatures, make sure we don't have a fever. Um, and so, you know, the people are going to be presenting very, very early on when all of our diagnostic tests will essentially be um, negative or um, falsely.
5: Other questions? Hi, this is Eric. Uh, I was just curious, um, from the standpoint of ECMO, have we been looking at um, applications for ultrasound in, in the patients who transitioned that, or are most of these patients not going that way?
4: We, we have had uh, three patients go on ECMO. Um, And it's really been based on um, inability to oxygenate. It's pure pure hypoxemia early on. Um, That's what we've been seeing. So that's the people that have ended up. But but honestly, a very small portion of them needed ECMO, uh, which is shocking because of how sick and how much ARDS they have. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, This is Elena. I have another question regarding. regarding the triaging or allocation of future ventilators if you were to run out. Uh, from your estimates, you said you have 80 patients intubated and you're increasing the use of ventilators every two to three days. So, you'll have 160 in two to three days and I guess 320 in six days. Um, and but we you lose people days. along the way. Remember, we lose people oh or day. we extubate oh, people okay. also, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's probably less than that. So do you, in maybe eight, nine days, um, do you have, and this is for us as an institution, perhaps how, um, what what kind of algorithms are set up when you have to uh, ration the the use of ventilators? Um, And that's a really really hard hard question. It's a really hard question. Mm -hmm. Um, We sat down with our ethics people and our palliative care people and sort of came up with a decision tree that we would use. Uh, New York State has helped us with that and has come up with a decision tree that they are suggesting as well. Uh, so we sort of combined the two. New York State also gave immunity to physicians so that they could not be, um, uh, pers- uh, you could not sue them for their purpose in, in this sort of a disastrous scenario because they did not mm-hmm. uh, obey wishes of DNR, DNI. So that also has helped us. But uh, we are definitely worried about that and thinking about it and hoping for a plateau that we haven't seen yet. But um, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for you. We're, we're, we're constantly talking about this. We're this not going to offer n- at some point. We're not going to offer it to certain people. We
6: just t- haven't gotten to that point yet. This okay. is Noelle in Denver. I had a quick question for Mangala. Um, As far as the VTE prophylaxis, you said these people are more thrombotic, you're seeing PEs. Have y'all changed how you're prophylaxing? And then a second question is, in terms of the tube patients, are you seeing the demographics mimic what came out of China, or is it basically spanning the spectrum of ages? We are definitely seeing young,
4: healthy people,
6: a lot of them. Our average age is 60 on ventilators.
4: Um, Comorbidities are hypertension, diabetes, mostly. Uh, A lot of obesity, a lot of obesity. but uh, we are definitely, uh, we have not changed our thromboprophylaxis except for patients who go on CVVHD. If they go on CVVHD, they seem to be clotting significantly more and the circuit's not working. So uh, in, it, we, we had a discussion with some of our Italian colleagues on this, and we have started doing aspirin, heparin drip, and uh, for all patients who are on CVVHD
6: with COVID. Thank you. This is Dana Reesup in Wisconsin. Um, we haven't seen a lot of this yet. We have mostly the worried folks coming in. Have you seen, a, or do you know if there's an equivalent DVT in the outpatient population who are sick? Uh, or is it really just I've I've, I've a had point?
4: I've seen anecdotal things. I don't have a real study of any kind, but I have seen some anecdotal things about an increased number of PEs the post-discharge and um, uh, things like that. So there's discussion, should we anticoagulate them? or at least do something as they leave the hospital? Um, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I think that's a worrisome point that we're all a little bit worried about. There was a pathology study that showed microthrombi in the lungs. So at some point, we were talking about anticoagulating with heparin, but we sort of shied away from that. I don't know the answer. I think um, that definitely needs to be studied and looked at, uh, but it's uh, clearly going to be an issue.
5: Thank you.
1: And, uh, Manglo, uh, I was uh, talking to one of my uh, colleagues down in Miami. He's an intensivist there. And he says people coming in um, just needing supplemental oxygen, not needing intubated. They're prophylactically proning them. They're asking to, you know, lie on your uh, stomach. Yes, we we did a little bit of that, too.
4: Yep, we did a little bit of that. We have a telehealth system where we can look into most of our ICUs through telehealth. And we've been using them to that, Um, And we've been using them to standardize a little bit our ARDS protocols across the system. So uh, yes, we have done that a little bit. Um, It's it's cute. Uh, It's a lot of these people can't do that. I also see that a lot of these people progress very quickly, like they're on a couple of liters and then 24 hours later, they're intubated on 100%. So they really rapidly decline, um, which is why you hear all these RITs. Um, And they look fine, and you get to a point where you can't accept them just to watch them in the ICU, which you would love to do, but you just don't have space. And then they end up uh, being an anesthesia stat call. So, uh, yes, we have tried that proning, yes. Awake patients, yes.
1: And 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 sounds like not uh, successful, not really.
4: It's just hard for people to do. They're uncomfortable. Uh, It works in a small subset of patients. It's not going to be a a, a cure-all, unfortunately.
2: Hey, Mangala, it's it's Jerry again. One quick question. Uh, Do you guys use any of the um, big helmet BiPAP
4: machines? We haven't been able to get any. Uh, They're they're hard to get. We don't have any, Um, so we haven't. I think if you had them and you can make it a closed circuit, you could probably do that. What I worry about is that they end up being crash intubations, um, and then to to get to them and to get the helmet off and do, I I just, something to think through and sort of maybe practice before the time actually comes, but we don't have those. Okay. Thank you. I'm going to go because I have uh, another meeting to get on, Um, but thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it, and good luck. You um, prepare for double what you're expecting. That's all I can say to you.
0: Yeah, thanks so much, Mongola, for joining. It was All right, great having you. Guys you. Take
4: care. Lots All right. Take you. Good take luck. Take care. Be bye safe, bye. Take
0: care of yourself. Um, what other questions do you have? I, I'm going to go over some of these questions real quick in the chat and then I'll open it back up. Somebody's, um, I see some questions about uh, disinfecting the machines. Like I said, I'll put those up um, um, on the slides that I have, but pretty much any of the Sandy wipes except for the HBs will work um, along with Cabby wipes. You just got to keep it on. The surface, keep the surface wet for um, two to three minutes, depending on which one. To be safe, just use three minutes, I think. Um, The other important thing is um, the machine needs to be cleaned before leaving the room and then after cleaning the room. So there is an ASAP document out there um, that we'll also post. Um, But you have to clean the machine with your PPE on and then come out of the room and then reclean it again. Um, For handheld devices, there are probe covers, so if it's a wireless handheld, then you can just drop the whole probe um, into the into the sheath. People are using plastic bags also. Um, that was actually one of the pictures I, I wasn't able to show you. Um, and then having a dedicated machine for your COVID unit if it's a closed unit, which is where you know a lot of the big hospitals are, are going to um, end up going. <clears throat> the other thing I saw in the chat was a lot of comments about which probe is the right probe. So uh, again, you can do your general lung exam with any low-frequency probe, uh, phased array typically. You could use curvilinear, not ro- wrong using curvilinear, but if you want to look at a certain area of the lung very carefully, you want to look at the plural line carefully, switch over to the linear probe, you can get better resolution. Um, the images I showed you where we could see B lines and subplural consolidations, they were a mix of linears and um, uh, phased array probes. So um, you're not wrong using you know one probe over the other. Um, what other questions do people have? No other thoughts, concerns? Everybody's got places to go. Well, look, I don't want to keep people on this Zoom. Um, we've all got lots and of, thing, of, of, of things to go and do, so the last thing I'll tell you. I
3: I was just going to ask, is there a um, particular time that you guys are deciding to jump and do cardiac ultrasound? I mean, just on admission to every time they come to the ICU or clinical change, hypotension? Um, you know, when are we kind of looking for cardiomyopathy to appear?
2: Yeah.
6: Um, so, I can. Neil, and I can comment a little bit on what we're setting up at DA, at Denver Health right now. Um, The current approach is gonna be to try and scan with admission, any decompensation or change in clinical status that would require PPE uh, usage for the MD to go in and assess the patient anyways. The cardiologist would like uh, daily scans, but um, that's obviously been a point of pushback when we're in a PPE On every admitted
3: COVID patient?
6: On every admitted and on the PUIs with positive troponins. Wow. So they want, so the current protocol being set up would include troponin trending. And with any change of 30% in high sensitivity troponin or uh, troponin that's positive using 99th percentile, they would either get POCUS or limited uh, TTE. Any ICU admit would get POCUS at admit or at, um, you know, if they admit directly to ICU, they would get POCUS, and then if they have change in their troponin, they would get POCUS. Right now, it's not set in stone, so the, the approach that I'm advocating along with our ED colleagues is going to be to try and be a, a conservationist with PPE and resources um, while still uh, using POCUS at intervals to see if we identify any change in function, um, you know, that can correspond to either outcomes or prognostication.
0: Yeah. So Tommy, I, 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 agree with all that Noel said, I, I would say at a minimum try to get um, at least a four chamber view, one of the four chamber views and a Paris journal um, to start off. Right. So kind of the whole heart lung exam um, because at least you have a baseline then. Right. So when things do go South and, and, and then you say, well, you know, he's had reduced ejection fraction that hasn't been diagnosed, or he's had some dysfunction that hasn't previously been diagnosed, but I think as having a baseline, it would only take, um, you know, a few minutes more, a more thorough uh, uh, upfront evaluation. And also, um, like I, like I was mentioning earlier, the, um, cardiologists are at more and more institutions are reading the POCUS images and not doing their own echoes. And so your high quality images are pretty much, you know, all that they may even have to.
3: Yeah, no, I agree. I'm certainly, I think it would be ideal if
0: every admitted patient and daily and so forth.
3: I think, uh, our one issue is, you know, we just have a huge, you know, probably 80 hospitalists plus another 50 APPs of whom only a small percent are sort of trained in POCUS. So it's sort of, we have a procedures team that can go around do POCUS. But um, anyways, it's just sort of the logistics of making that happen, of actually scanning those people. And then of course, because then if it's not your patient, then you're, then you're putting on PPE yourself and sort of exposing yourself as well. And those risks yeah. and so forth, but it is interesting if that's what I mean. If that's sort of what's being done, then it's something worth advocating for. But yeah, we've had uh, it's been sort of uh, nice to see that otherwise, full, uh, you know, Echo the Echo Lab, who's has not been all, altogether super supportive of POCUS, now being more so, knowing that you know it makes way more sense for me to go in and do a quick exam with a handheld machine rather than um, you know the contaminate their whole Echo Lab or you know have the machine be cleaned for an hour after their scan.
0: Yeah, no, you're not alone. You know, I think every place is sort of struggling with that same question of provider training, right? So um, just do the best do the best we can, right, and, and help out. It's um, lots of variables to try to um, juggle. But it sounds like sort of troponin rise
3: or obviously any other clinical change or hypertension or anything like that is something that in particular is triggering uh, additional scanning, sounds like.
0: Yeah, for sure, yeah. I think that would, I mean, that would be clear justification for, um, um, you know, even doing that first one, if one hasn't been done previously, right. Any other questions or comments, concerns, you know, anything I missed in the chat box to the lower right? Well, look, uh, thanks everybody for joining. This was really meant to be a, an information sharing, um, you know, across institutions, across colleagues. Um, we, we, we may continue to do this once a week. Um, we'll probably send out maybe a poll to see what time and day works best. Obviously there's not gonna be a perfect time for anybody, especially with all the changing of shifts and cross covering that's gonna have to happen in the coming weeks. Um, but last thing I'll say is be safe, take care of yourselves, um, wear your masks, and um, hope to see you soon at a, maybe a future conference rather than seeing everybody on a screen or a meeting, even a meeting would be nice.
1: <laughs> well, Neil, this is a wonderful uh, endeavor that you, know, you uh, got all these people together and it was a wonderful presentation, very impressed. Thank you for doing this. Yeah,
0: Neil you should think about doing this again. Yeah. Thanks, Gordy. I, I, you know, we may do it on a weekly basis and let people share their cases and what they've learned. Um, Again, you know, the literature, the formal literature of what's published is going to lag behind clinical practice. And so um, things are moving a lot faster than we'd like. We'll send out a doodle poll. How's that? To figure out what time would be the best for everybody the majority of people. All right, folks, have a great day. Good luck. Godspeed ahead. Take care, Neelam.
2: Bye.